You're listening to The Seventh, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. Well, good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you guys with us. As Lydia said, we'd love to connect with you before you leave this morning and meet you, um, get to know a little bit more about your story. Um, Just a heads up, my wife is nine days away from a scheduled C-section, and so here's the deal. Um, She and I just communicated because she and my daughter are sick, and we did not come up with a strategic game plan. And so uh, back in the back room about five minutes ago, we determined that if my phone rings, I leave. That means she's in labor. And even if that's in the middle of a sermon, uh, I will apologize for that and uh, maybe record some audio of the remainder of the sermon. And you guys can hang out and enjoy coffee and have a blast, and I will go meet my new daughter. Um, my wife will be very embarrassed if the phone rings and she's telling me about a roach that she needs killed whenever I get home uh, after all this is said and done. So she knows the deal. I know the deal. You guys now know the deal, so it's not super awkward if the phone rings and I disappear in the middle of a church service. Um, with that being said... Uh, If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under uh, one of the seats in front of you, in the row in front of you. You can grab a Bible there and flip open to uh, chapter 2 of Revelation. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you as the church's gift to you. We want you to own a Bible, so please take that. We won't come hunt you down and and, uh, demand your soul as payment for the book that you took from us. So with that being said, I'm not going to read the entirety of the passage this morning. Uh, It's a little lengthy, and so I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to jump in and get to work because we have much to cover this morning. So let's pray. God, thank you for what you're doing in this church and in this city. Thank you for uh, the true display of freedom, which we see uh, in the cross of Jesus Christ. You have freed us from the shackles of sin and self and uh, have given us free hands to lift to you in worship, uh, free souls that we can turn to you uh, and make much of you, freed affections, freed uh, minds uh, that we can direct towards you as well. So thank you for what you have done through your cross to truly free us. We love you. Pray this morning that you would be made much of and uh, that you would uh, help us to see the areas in which you might want to correct us and to also be encouraged in the ways that you might commend us. So we ask all this uh, to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so from week one, I threw out this prayer, and this is a, a recurring prayer that I'd like for us to, as a church, pray together, which is this. Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable, rebuke me in that which is dishonorable, and above all, help me to see you more and more for who you truly are. Now, the reason for this prayer is because for the last few weeks and as we continue on through uh, the summer months, we're looking at the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. We're in the middle of a series entitled The Seven, where we're taking a look at seven letters written to seven uh, first century churches in Asia Minor. And in each of these letters, for the most part, Jesus commends some things in each church. He, he corrects some things and he provides uh, some warnings and some promises. And so In light of that, we want to be a church that prays, Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable. We're not just here to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be disciplined. Um, We want you to encourage us in that which uh, you see in us that is shaped in your image by your grace. But we also want you to correct those things uh, in our lives which bring dishonor to you rather than honor um, so that uh, more people might meet you and, and see that you are a good and sovereign king. So... With that being said, as I said before, we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're in verses 18 through 29 this morning. We're taking a look at a letter written to the church in Thyatira, giving you a little bit of background each week on each of these cities. This city is uh, very uninteresting. So this is the least important of the seven cities that we'll look at in this entire series. Uh, This city was not very religiously important, so uh, you would not, in in first century Asia Minor, if you walked into the city limits of Thyatira, you would not find any special temples or shrines to the Roman or Greek gods. Uh, It was not very politically important, so they did not uh, have a high allegiance to Caesar and the Roman Empire. Interestingly, this city was very commercially important, very economically important. So you'd find a number of trade guilds, a number of uh, associations in this city for workers. So there was a baker's association. There was a bronze worker's association. There was a fabric worker's association. 
There was a cobbler's association. There was an association for weavers and tanners and potters and those who would dye different fabrics, which is why when you read Acts chapter 16, you encounter a lady by the name of Lydia who was, uh, we're told, a seller of purple goods. Uh, She was from Thyatira. She was converted on Paul's second missionary journey. A little interesting fun fact, if you didn't know this, that um, purple dye, which was obtained from a certain type of shellfish in that part of the ancient world, was the only color fast dye in all of the ancient world. And so, uh, as a result, purple became a status symbol of both royalty and wealth. So that if that particular shellfish had created any other color dye, that would be the color of royalty today. Think about it. So if that shellfish created an orange dye, orange would be the color of royalty today. If it created a green dye, green would be the color of royalty today. That's why you see kings dressed in purple robes. That this city was the least important of the seven cities, the land of blue-collar trade guilds, and yet this is the longest letter of all the seven, that Jesus has something to say to us this morning and to this church in first century Asia Minor. If you look at verse 19, it says, uh, Jesus says, I know your works. He says, I know your faith and your love and your service and your patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. That Jesus commends a couple of of things in this church that he sees. One, he commends the trifecta of faith, hope, and love. You see, he says, um, I know your works, your love, and your faith. And if you go on, patient endurance is the fruit that comes from the seed of hope. That it's hope that causes us as Christians to patiently endure. That Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter that you hear read at every wedding uh, across the world, uh, says this, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. That there is this trifecta of sorts in the Christian life of faith, hope, and love. And Jesus sees all three of these in the church in Thyatira. But he also sees something else. It says, Uh, I know that your latter works exceed the first, that Jesus sees Christian growth in this church, that if you go back to the very first letter that we looked at, um, the letter written to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus had abandoned the love that she had at first, and yet we're told that the church in Thyatira was exceeding the works that she had done at first. You get the picture maybe of a flower bed in which all the flowers are in full, full bloom, growing in a healthy way, that the Christian life is a life of growth, growing in faith, hope, and love. That These people didn't believe in a theology of a get-out-of-hell-free card kind of mentality. That was not what, what drove them. Sam Storm says it this way in his commentary. He says, The Christian life is an ever-upward trek toward greater heights of holiness and love and theological understanding. Being born again is only a beginning, not an end. An inauguration, not a consummation. And he goes on to say, appealing to one's initial zeal as an excuse for shifting into spiritual cruise control won't set well with our Lord. So one of the first questions for us this morning as the church is this, are you growing? Do you see growth happening in your life as a Christian? Or are you declining? Or, or maybe even a third option, are you in stagnancy mode? Are you apathetic toward the things of God? Maybe some diagnostic questions to kind of get to the, the heart of this would be, um, are you more fascinated with the Bible than you were when you first became a Christian? Are you more stirred in your affections for Jesus than you were when you first became a Christian? Are you more zealous to tell others about Jesus than you were when you first became a Christian? Are you more passionate about serving Jesus and his church than you were when you first became a Christian? Or has the Bible that once fascinated you become a dusty piece of of home decor these days? Have your affections for Jesus grown cold over the course of time? Has your evangelistic fervor been replaced with apathetic complacency? Has serving Jesus and his church gone from an honor and a privilege to a a burden and an inconvenience? I think this is crucial for us because in in this hyper-churched, under-gospeled subculture, there are a lot of people who have lost their first love. And they're walking around as cultural Christians checking boxes left and right, and yet true growth in the gospel is not happening. And so the question is, what do we do with this? How do you respond? Well, if you are growing, if you would look at your life and say, yeah, I think I do see a trajectory of growth theologically and with respect to my affections uh, and with respect to my zeal to serve and be spent for the glory of God. If, if that's you, then the call would simply be to keep fanning that into flame, right? Because at any time, the spark can go out. That's why Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus to say, you haven't been around for long, and yet the spark has already gone out in terms of your, your first love. 
And so we want to always be fanning that into to flame to, to make the assumption that it could be tomorrow that the flame fans out. But for those who have lost their first love, who maybe fall into the category of, of you would say, I'm in decline mode, or, or I'm just in stagnancy mode right now, what do you do? And, and I think there are uh, a couple of things that you could do in response to this. I think it comes down to the argument of the chicken or the egg. So yeah, you can either do, on the one hand, this. You can, you can sit on your couch and wait for affection to spontaneously combust within you and then allow that to drive you into Christian action, into the disciplines of Christianity. Or you can press into the Scriptures even in the midst of your apathy, in the, in the midst of, of your complacency, in the midst of the fact that there is no zeal for the very scriptures that you're pressing into, you can get on your knees and pray even though your heart is not deeply engaged and, and you can ask God to stir something in you as you press into those various things that we call the Christian disciplines. Now, which of those do you do? Here's where I think that marriage, which functions as a shadow of a greater reality of the covenant between Jesus and his bride, is helpful. Because here's what I'm not going to do if the spark is lost in my marriage, if I become apathetic toward my wife. I'm not going to sit on the couch and just wait for the big bang to happen in my heart. I'm not going to wait for my heart to somehow... Uh, establish some form of spontaneous combustion in which all of a sudden there's an affection for her so that I can then go take her out on a date and mean it. But rather what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out to dinner with my wife. I'm going to take my wife on a date and I'm going to hope and pray that, that as we um, spend time together that something is cultivated intimately between the two of us. Does that make sense? So I think the answer would be if you're in decline mode or you're apathetic, just open your Bible. That, that there's nothing wrong with opening a Bible with a bad motive. We ask non-Christians to do it all the time, right? And so the Christian life would be one where we could be honest enough to say, God, you know everything about me anyway, so I'm going to open my Bible and knowing that my heart is completely disengaged from this. And I'm going to trust that you've revealed yourself in these very scriptures in such a way that this might be the, the very thing that sparks something in my mind and in my heart for you, for your glory and for my joy. Same thing with prayer, that we can actually get on our knees as Christians, even when our heart is completely disengaged and be honest with God and say, my heart's not in this, but I feel like I just need to talk to you and, and, and in hope uh, that something will be stirred as a result of, of me doing this. And knowing that you may do it over and over and over again and still live in the land of apathy or decline, that it may take time for that to be cultivated, but I think that's far more helpful than, than waiting for the heart level big bang to happen uh, in our lives so that we might actually then uh, move toward growth at a mind and heart level uh, with God. The church in Thyatira amazingly is growing in their Christianity and faith, hope, and love. They have the trifecta down pat, and yet Jesus says in verse 20 that uh, there are a couple of things that I need to correct you on. He says, I have this against you in verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, the big question as we look at the next few verses is, who in the world is Jezebel? Who is this lady? If you go back to the Old Testament, uh, you find in 1 Kings, in the wake of Solomon's reign, the, the kingdom of Israel is split. It's divided. So you have the northern kingdom which is referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. And so if you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you see that such and such was the king of Israel, we're talking northern kingdom. If you see that such and such was king of Judah, we're talking southern kingdom. And, and the northern kingdom was notorious uh, for evil. So there, there was uh, a stretch coming out of Solomon's reign in which there was no good king. There was no king who did right in the eyes of the Lord. So you had, to, you had to go really far in wickedness in order to set yourself apart from all the kings who had reigned before you. And yet we're told in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now the question begs to be answered, what did he do that was so evil? I'm glad you asked. If you look at the next verse, we're told that he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. That Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon, and with that marriage came the intermingling of the gods and goddesses of other religions, along with the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. 
that Ahab had altars and temples erected to worship the gods of his wife, we're told. So that if you read a couple verses later in 1 Kings 16, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That Jezebel was unbelievably wicked. That she tried to take Elijah, uh, one of God's Old Testament prophets, uh, tried to take his life along with other Old Testament prophets, that uh, if you know the story of Naboth's vineyard, that we're told that she was the brains behind that wicked assassination, so that it goes on to tell us in 1 Kings 21, a few chapters later, that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like King Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited, that she was the brains behind uh, all of this immorality and this commingling of other gods with the God of of Israel, the God of the Bible. And Jesus says in this morning's passage that Jezebel is on the scene in Thyatira. She's leading the people astray, leading them to worship false gods. Now, let me just throw this out there. I think it's highly likely that in Thyatira, in, in this particular context of, of who this letter was written to, that uh, I think it's highly unlikely that Jezebel was the woman's actual name who was causing troubles. In fact, I think it could very well be symbolic of more than one person, kind of a Jezebel culture in this church, a Jezebel spirit. And, and here's why I think that, and other commentators would agree. Because who in the wake of that Old Testament story names their daughter Jezebel? Right? I, I was thinking about this this week. As we were thinking about how we were going to name our, our kids, uh, we have a second one on the way. Before the, the big gender reveal, we were kind of going through some names and there were a few that did not make the list. Jezebel did not make the list. Judas did not make the list for a son. Nor did Adolf, right? There are some names that you just don't, you don't name your children because of what happened in human history. And, and I think the same could be said of, of Jezebel. It would be like naming your kid Judas or Adolf. And so more likely, again, is that Jezebel was used symbolically to, to emphasize the threat that this person or group of people uh, was posing to the, the church in Thyatira, that as, as much a threat to the holiness of the church in Thyatira uh, was being uh, threatened, so to speak, by this quote-unquote Jezebel, what was the, the same thing that was happening to the holiness of Israel in the Old Testament. So that you might ask, how was this person or persons threatening the holiness of this particular church? Well, Interestingly, if you go back to the background, this is why background matters. Because in Thyatira, in this blue-collar land of trade guilds, uh, in order to make money, you had to be a part of one of these associations. It was like being a part of the union. And yet the trade guilds in Thyatira were wrapped up in pagan worship. So similar to the scene in Pergamum, going back to last week, people would offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. And uh, part of the, the sacrifice of the animal was given to the god. Part of it was kept by the priest, but much of the animal was then given back to the worshiper who would then throw a party in the temple of that god and invite all of their friends. Well, specifically in Thyatira, that group of friends were those that you shared a trade guild with. And so trade guilds would gather in pagan temples to share a meat that involved, uh, share a meal, I should say, that involved eating meat sacrificed to idols. And furthermore, the party would most always get out of hand and lead to drunkenness and sex. And so as a Christian, you had two options. One, be a member of your trade guild, participate in, in the sins of the culture and ensure financial stability. Or two, don't be a member of your trade guild and ensure that you will experience financial suicide. Now, you might say, well, what about the third option? I mean, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Can't you, can't you just engage that with the gospel in some sense? And I would say in most cases, yes, that's what we're called to. We're not called to, to be syncretists who just adopt any and everything that we see in culture, nor are we called to be separatists who just completely disengage from culture out of fear that uh, the culture is going to get us quote-unquote, spiritually dirty, there is a third option in which you can engage culture to see it transformed by the power of the gospel. And there are many ways that you can do that in the community and the surrounding areas. But in this particular situation, it would be like going with your Buddhist friend to the Buddhist temple in the midst of a worship service and just participating in all that they're doing, including their taking of communion. It would be like hanging out at a strip club with your non-Christian friend, right? You can probably go to the bar and, and come out on the other side in a way that you've honored the king and hung out with your non-Christian brother or sister as they've just 
committed uh, sin after sin. But going to a strip club, it's going to be really hard to walk away from that experience in a way that honors the king. You, you got to go in with blinders over your eyes in order to pull that one off. And the same was true of these gatherings in the temple, that, that it was such a great um, scene of, of sin and debauchery and pagan worship that you just couldn't even engage it on that turf. That Jezebel, whoever she was, was influential in the church and was nudging Christians to join these trade guilds um, to morally and ethically compromise in order to grind out a living. And Jesus says, you, the church, are tolerating this. You're tolerating blatant theological and moral compromise. Now, this is fascinating to me because in in this passage, you have the word, uh, as Jesus says, I need to correct you about some things. He says, I see you tolerating something. Let me ask you this. What kind of connotations does the word intolerant have in our culture? Not very good ones, right? Nobody wants to be seen as intolerant. Um, Nobody uh, wants to be labeled intolerant, that uh, narrow-minded. There are other synonymous words that we could throw out there that you just don't want to be tagged with, even as a Christian oftentimes. But Interestingly, Jesus does say that there are some things to be intolerant of. Now, here's the thing. The worst thing you could do is go out of this, and, out of this uh, place this morning and use this as a proof text for any time someone says you're being intolerant and go, ah, uh, Revelation 2 says, because I, I think you've got to take it in context here, that what Jesus is saying is that there is a sense in which the church must be intolerant of blatant false teaching and moral compromise coming from within the body of Christ. The threat was not from the outside like we've seen in some of these previous letters that we've looked at by way of persecution for failure to worship Rome and the Greek gods. Rather, the threat was from the inside in this church. And it was time to get some courage and a conscience, Jesus is, is saying, that some in the church in the name of truth, notice Jezebel refers to herself as a prophetess, the one who, who declares truth. Some in the church in the name of truth were teaching things that don't jive with Scripture, and it was affecting the moral purity of the church. Now, we got to cross the bridge to today. What does that mean for us? What, what's the Jezebel spirit of our day in the church? What is the Jezebel culture that we need to be aware of? And we could probably talk for hours about this, so this is not an exhaustive list to be sure. But let me just give you some ideas of, of how I see this playing out. Um, we need to note that uh, it's both theological and moral in nature. So we're told that Jezebel calls herself a prophetess and is teaching on the one hand. So there are theological problems here. But we're also told that she's seducing, that there are moral issues at hand here. So let me attack uh, both of those one at a time. Theologically, Sam Storms in his commentary on this particular passage says that the church of our day suffers from what he calls spiritual osteoporosis, which simply means that the church has lost her theological backbone. Let me, let me throw out some ways that I see this as a reality in the world in which we live that we want to combat, that we want to fight against as Crosspoint, Peachtree City. The first of those would be biblical uh, and or doctrinal illiteracy. And so most people, I would argue, this might sound crazy for me to say, most people in our hyper-churched subculture don't know the story of the Bible. They cannot trace the thread of redemption in Jesus found from start to finish, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That's why the Jesus Storybook Bible is such an eye-opener for both adults and kids alike. If you've ever read that, even as a grown-up, it'll bring tears to your eyes because it's probably not the lens through which you read the Bible um, growing up as a kid. The Bible tells a story that many of us are not familiar with otherwise, that many people would say that they believe the gospel, but when asked to articulate the gospel, we, we freeze like we, we, we're not confident in the very doctrines that we'd say that we would die for at the end of the day. And the church isn't helping. And in effect, to draw people in, the church has now compromised the, the truth of Scripture and this, this grand thread of redemption traced throughout all of, all of the Bible and has watered down the truth in order to draw more people in. That doesn't help. We want to be a church that helps people to grow in, in biblical literacy, in doctrinal literacy. And so this morning, let me, let me just try to attack this issue from a couple of different angles. Okay, so first of all, um, we believe that Jesus is the hero of the Bible, that the Bible is not just a bunch of stories kind of piecemealed together with good uh, moral, ethical um, 
ideas that you can walk away from and then implement in your life? Is there a sense in which there is a piece of that, that we look to the Bible for how to live in the way God designed us to live? Yes and amen. But the Bible ultimately is, is not so much about us. Rather, it is ultimately about a hero, namely King Jesus from start to finish. And so some of you who just went through the partnership course, you saw a video that drives at uh, some of what I'm about to unpack for us. But we believe that the entire Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through the end points to King Jesus as the hero. And so this is what we believe as Crosspoint Peachtree City. We believe that Jesus is the greater Adam. That in Genesis we're told that Adam failed in his test uh, in the Garden of Eden and rebelled against God. Yet in the Gospels we're told that Jesus passed the test in his Garden of Gethsemane and obeyed God. That we believe that Jesus is the greater Abel, that Abel was slain by his brother Cain, and his blood cries out for justice. Meanwhile, Jesus was slain, and his innocent blood cries out for mercy, making atonement for our sins. That we believe that Jesus is the greater Abraham, that God called Abraham to leave his home and go to a place where he'd become the father of many nations. Yet Jesus left his home and entered into the slums of human history to redeem the nations. We believe that Jesus is the greater Isaac, that Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, carried the wood uh, for the altar on his back up the hill to the place where he would be sacrificed. And yet at the last minute, God provided a ram and a thicket as a substitute so that Isaac might live. Yet Jesus, the one and only son of God, carried a cross on his back up the hill of Golgotha to the place where he would be sacrificed. Yet God didn't provide a substitute. Rather, Jesus is our substitute, bearing our sins and dying in our place so that we might bear his righteousness and live. That Jesus is the greater Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who sold him and betrayed him and uses his own power to save them. That Jesus is the greater Moses, who functions as the mediator between God and his people and establishes a covenant not with tablets of stone but in his blood. That we believe that Jesus is the greater Job, the innocent sufferer whose friends abandoned him when he needed them. That Jesus is the greater Boaz, that Boaz redeemed Ruth, bringing unwanted foreigners into God's community. Meanwhile, Jesus redeemed us, bringing orphaned Gentiles into the family of God. That we believe that Jesus is the greater Esther, that Esther risked losing the throne and ultimately her life, yet Jesus willingly gave up his throne and ultimately his life for us. That we believe that Jesus is the greater David, slaying the giants of sin and death through his life, death, and resurrection. We believe that Jesus is the greater Hosea, that Hosea married a prostitute who was unfaithful to him. Yet Jesus redeemed us, and we are the bride of Christ, and he's faithful to us even when we're unfaithful. That Jesus is the greater Jonah, that Jonah remained in the belly of the great fish for three days. Yet Jesus remained in the belly of the earth for three days before conquering sin and death, rising from the grave. That Jesus is the true Passover lamb, innocent and slain so that the angel of death would pass over us. That Jesus is the true prophet, that while the Old Testament prophets declared, thus says the Lord, Jesus declared, truly, truly, I say to you because I am the Lord. That Jesus is the true priest, that the Old Testament priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people and themselves because they were all sinners. Yet Jesus offered a sacrifice as the sinless substitute for his people. That Jesus is the true king, that kings have come and gone over the course of human history, and yet Jesus is the king of kings whose kingdom has no end. That the whole Bible is meant to help you see the one true hero, Jesus. And we, Crosspoint Peachtree City, believe that to be true as we open up the scriptures every day. Not just every Sunday, every day. That we're looking for the hero as the entire Old Testament foreshadows him and the entire New Testament points to his person and work in the wake of his coming. Now, let me attack this from another angle. Why do we need a hero? Why do we need the good news of Jesus? That's what the gospel means in the original Greek. That uh, The word gospel in the Greek is the word euangelion. It means good news. Why do we need good news? Well, you need good news because there's bad news, right? And yet the gospel, or or the Bible, I should say, doesn't begin with bad news. It begins with good news. That in the beginning, God, we're told. That uh, in the very beginning of creation, you weren't there. I wasn't there. That God is the only uh, self-sustaining, self-existent, eternal being in all of the universe. And yet we're told that God created. 
that uh, God made the sun, and God made the moon, and God made the stars, and then God made the skies, and the land, and the waters, and God shaped the land into mountains, and valleys, and, and hills, and mountains, and God shaped the waters into rivers, and lakes, and streams, and oceans, and then God created creatures to inhabit all of those domains, and that as the crowning glory of God's creation, he created human beings like you and me as his image bearers. And so you and I are created with dignity because we're not on the same level with animals, and yet we're created with humility because we're not on the same level with God. And God said, I want you to do a couple of things. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I want you to make a lot of babies, and I want you to keep the garden and work it. In other words, I want you to be culture makers. I want you to take what I've made, and I want you to make something with that. And all was right and good in the world. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, lived in bliss, in utopia. There was no sin. There was no suffering. There was no sadness. There was no death. And yet we're told that in Genesis 3, bad news came onto the scene, that rooted in the deception of the serpent, Satan himself, and the desire to be like God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, that they committed uh, the sin of cosmic treason, seeking to take the throne away from God as, as uh, those who would declare truth for themselves rather than submitting to the truth of God's word. And, and God, because he's not only a loving father, but also a just judge, had to do something about it, that for him to sweep those crimes committed against him under the rug would make him a really bad judge, that he should be disbarred from the bench at that point. And so God had to respond, and he did respond by pronouncing judgment upon our first parents, Adam and Eve, by pronouncing a curse upon sin, namely death. And so since Adam and Eve, human beings experience what we know as physical death, we're all heading on our way to, to that end, ultimately, unless Jesus comes back first. But not just physical death, spiritual death as well, that the spiritual umbilical cord between us and God has been severed. And that if we experience physical death while this spiritual severance is in place, we will experience a third form of death, namely eternal death, separated from God and all of his blessings. And the entire Old Testament reveals that human beings can't save themselves. That if you read about everyone in the Old Testament, you see men and women over and over again who can't seem to get it right, who can't seem to live a perfect life. That the worst part of the bad news is that you and I can't make up the gap between God's holy perfection and our sinfulness. And that's why Christians believe that God made up the gap for us. That Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, entered into human history. He bridged that gap, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and thus fully God and fully man. We believe that he lived the life that we could never live, that he died the death that we deserve to die as our substitute, that our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place, but that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where right now he is ruling and reigning as triumphant king of the universe, that when we sing the songs that we sing, we're singing to a living king. And we believe that one day he will come back and he will make everything sad, untrue, as he eradicates evil and creates eternal peace for his followers. And we as Christians believe that the hope that we have of salvation is simply that we bring our sins and the empty hand of faith, uh, empty hands of faith to our God and ask for mercy, looking to the person and work of Jesus alone for hope and salvation. And so if you're not a Christian, that's what we hope for you. We hope that you will turn from sin and self and turn to our living King Jesus and trust in who he is and what he's done for you. That that's, that's the gospel, okay? The reason I stepped away from the lectern for a moment is because I, I want you to, to be encouraged to know that you can proclaim this. You don't need your notes to do so. There's not a seminary class that I took that taught me what I just communicated to you all. That, that we can be a people who internalize the gospel not only at a mind level, but allow it to seep down into the seat of our affections in such a way that we functionally live this thing out so that people are moved and compelled to turn to King Jesus. I deeply, my vision for this church is that we would be a mobilized people who can communicate um, the, the horror of the bad news and the beauty of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ well. There's a problem for the church in Thyatira in that she had abandoned truth in some sense and it was driving to moral impurity. Another way that I see this in the context of our culture is that I think oftentimes we interpret the Bible through faulty interpretive lenses. 
And so one way to interpret the Bible would, would be this, to extract the original meaning from the text, to understand it in its original context, and then to apply it to, to our context. That's what we do here as a church. Another way to interpret the Bible, and I think this is very dangerous, is to read our culture or our personal experience into the Bible. And so some would say that this is a value in our culture, whatever it is, fill in the blank with whatever it might be. So if the Bible doesn't express that value, the Bible must be reinterpreted, not our culture. And what that says is that culture becomes the trump card, not the truth of God's word. That culture becomes the dog that waves the the tail of God's word, of God's truth. Some would say that it's not so much culture, but personal experience that dictates truth. And so um, it might come across like this. I had this happen to me, and my experience must be valid. So if the Bible doesn't support my experience, then the Bible must be reinterpreted in light of my experience. And what that says is that personal experience becomes the trump card rather than God's word. Let me, let me be crystal clear this morning that if you're allowing culture or personal experience to sit on, on the throne of biblical interpretation, you're no longer a Protestant Christian. That one of the most key doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s is the doctrine that we know as sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone, that the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of doctrine and Christian practice. That Jezebel was saying to the church in Thyatira, I I have the final word on truth. I'm a prophetess. I speak truth. And so you need to listen to me. As a church, as Cross Point Peachtree City, we believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura. We believe that scripture has the final word on matters of truth. That we don't believe that the shifting tides of culture have the final say-so on truth. We, we don't believe that our personal experiences have the final say-so on truth. Rather, we believe that the culture is to be interpreted through the lens of God's word, and we believe the same thing about our personal experiences. Now, now those are two theological issues that, that might create a Jezebel culture, a Jezebel spirit in, in our day as the church. Let me give you one uh, moral implication, because like I said, Jezebel uh, was not only teaching, but she was also seducing. So what does this look like on the moral side of things? Let me come back to something that I brought up uh, just a moment ago, this issue of easy believism, the get-out-of-hell-free card mentality. Now, I think this comes as a result of two things. One, bad evangelism. So maybe this is your story. Someone said, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, if you'll just walk down this aisle and pray this prayer and fill out this card, you'll be good. And then they abandon you, and you were left to try to figure it out all on your own. Because that was the reductionistic form of the gospel that was communicated to you. And as a result, it leads to this easy believism. I'm good to go. I got my card. I prayed my prayer. So let's get on with the show. But I also think that biblical illiteracy can play a part into that, that it's not just on the bad evangelists out there, but it's on us too, that if we don't immerse ourselves in the story of the Bible, we're we're not going to be compelled to submit our lives to its hero. That if we don't immerse ourselves in the truths of the Bible, we're we're not going to have any clue of how to live in the way that God designed us as human beings to live in the world that he created. That you might say it like this, Jesus didn't just die to make converts, He died to make disciples. He died to conform us into his image, which is why we have verses like Titus 2.14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, yes, from all lawlessness, but also to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus says in this text that morality is directly tied to theology, that right thinking empowers right living. And some in the church in Thyatira were abandoning both. And no one's fooling Jesus. It's really interesting. If you look at verses 18 and 23, Jesus is a a cultural whiz at contextualizing. He's the king of that. And so he reveals himself in each of these letters in a way that's unique for those people and what they're dealing with as a church. And in this particular letter, in verse 18, he reveals himself as the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And in verse 23, he unpacks that a little bit more and says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That Jesus first describes himself as one who has eyes like a flame of fire. What does that mean? This is language that comes from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, 10, which says this, 
says, I am the Lord, uh, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That, that verse in the Old Testament points to Yahweh, God, and Jesus says that applies to me, that Jesus is affirming his divinity, that he is fully God. And he affirms it again in this passage by saying, I'm the son of God, that I am eternal uh, before the foundations of the world, second person of the Trinity. That Jesus is keenly aware of our every thought, our every feeling, and our every action. That our lives are an open book to him. Hebrews 4.13 uh, says it this way, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That You might say it this way, and I've said this before. Jesus is not in the business of playing hide-and-go-seek with us. It's boring to him. He's way too good at it. He's already won the game before we ever even go hide. And our response when we encounter that truth, strangely, is to go and hide. Right? Think about it. We, we put on our proverbial fig leaves and try to hide from God. And yet, that truth that he sees everything is meant to set us free. It's meant to bring us out of hiding from the darkness into the light. An architect once offered to build a house for the Greek philosopher Plato. I love this. Um, a house in which no one could see into any room in the home. So, so complete security from the eyes of the world. And Plato said this. This was his response. He said, I'll give you twice as much if you build a house for me into every room of which everyone can see. That Plato thought that to be exposed, to be known, is more virtuous and more freeing than to go into hiding. I think he, he was right about that. He was wrong about a lot of other things, but he was right about that one. William Barclay says it this way. He says, Happy is the man who feels that his inmost desires and thoughts can bear the scrutiny of both men and God. Only Christ can so cleanse us that we can bear the gaze of his own eyes. That we constantly look to his cross for our identity, not at who we are and what we do or don't do, but who Jesus is and what he's done. That we trust in those three words, it is finished. Jesus is described not only as him who has eyes like a flame of fire, but feet like burnished bronze. And this is really simple. This is Jesus affirming that... uh, He is able not just to see and discern evil, but he has the power to purge it as well. This is the language of judgment, that the church in Thyatira might be willing to tolerate theological and moral compromise, but Jesus says, I'll squash that. I will trample that in a blink. And he goes on to caution this church. In verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, notice very briefly here, that with respect to this church, Jesus is unbelievably merciful. He's unbelievably compassionate to this church. That even though he's intolerant of what's unfolding in this church, he gives this woman time to repent. That that's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God. That's the patience of God. That for some of us, we're in a season in which Jesus is giving us time to repent. And the worst thing that we can do is to interpret that gift of time as tolerance or approval of our sin. That that for those who refuse to repent, Jesus says there won't always be time. And he goes on to unpack in verse 22 and, and 23 what he means by that. He says, Behold, I will throw her, Jezebel, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mine and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That this Jezebel refuses to repent of her infidelity to God. It's a scary place to be in a situation where you've been given time and space to repent and you don't. That if you go on to read about the Jezebel in the Old Testament, it did not end well for her, people. This is how it ended. She was thrown from a window where she was then trampled by a horse and then eaten by dogs so that her body was not even recognizable. It says it this way in 2 Kings 9. This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. In other words, dogs are going to consume the flesh, and then they're going to excrete her in such a way that you can't point out a certain place where you see her and go, that was her. That was the end for this woman in a place where proper burial mattered to the Jewish community. That For some of us, the application this morning is really simple. It's the time is now. Don't don't look for tomorrow. Don't anticipate tomorrow because you might not have one. 
that the call is to fall at the foot of the cross and receive the grace of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus, that Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. He bore your judgment. Forgiveness is yours right now if you will bend your knee to him as king and trust in him as savior. That he offers that right now with no bounds. And and this is not just for the non-Christian in the room. This is for all of us Christians too, that we have an opportunity to repent of our apathy, of our decline, to turn to him and have our affections renewed. Martin Luther, in his famous 95 Theses, said, Jesus willed the entire lives of believers to be one of repentance. That you don't just repent once, become a Christian, and then just leave that by the wayside till the day you die. But we're constantly walking in faith and repentance, looking at, at the glory of God and seeing just how deep the sin problem really runs, which we weren't able to see when we first became Christians, right? Over the course of the Christian life, you become more aware of just how jacked up you are, and the cross just looms larger for you the longer you go at this thing called the Christian life. That's the beauty of the gospel, that, that the cross looms larger, and, and it just keeps doing so until the day that we die. And we continue to repent and turn and look to our great and glorious king. Jesus says, as we close this morning, not only are there warnings, but there are promises to those who will continue to look to him and trust in him and keep their eyes fixed on him. He says in verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. That the first thing Jesus promises is not to respond to license with legalism. That according to Jesus, legalism is not the answer to, to license. He doesn't add more demands on top of demands. He says, hold fast to what you have. That the proper response to moral compromise in the church is not reactionary legalism. We're, we're so good at this, at swinging the pendulum. We, we live in the land of license. We, we go off like the prodigal son living in wayward, you know, Vegas kind of lifestyle. And then we feel like we got to burn our CDs and everything that was, you know, tied into that world so that we can become a Christian. And we live this monk life and then over the course of time we get really angry at the church we feel like we're now in the land of the pharisees and so we got to react to that by flaunting our liberties like a clown and so we just we swing from one uh side of the pendulum to the other and we can't seem to stop it in the middle and just go i'm going to walk the gospel path jesus says hold fast to what you have you have my word abide in it stay committed to growing in faith hope and love And he goes on to offer a couple more promises. Verse 26, he says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That Jesus promises us, secondly, a role in eradicating evil. This is crazy. Some of you saw fireworks yesterday. You got a front row seat. You pulled up a lawn chair, and you got to watch things explode. What Jesus is saying is that in the end, you get to be a part of lighting the fuse on eradicating evil. You don't get to just sit in a lawn chair. You get to participate somehow, that we are co-heirs with Christ. I talked about this in 1 Corinthians 6 as we looked at um, the first few chapters back in the spring of 1 Corinthians, that Paul says you and I will one day judge the world and angels. That there's coming a day when Jesus will make everything sad and true, and in order to do that, he's got to eradicate evil. That Heaven is no heaven at all if it's filled with wickedness. That no one wants to go to a heaven where you have to walk around with one eye open all the time. So there is coming a day when the eradication of evil will happen. And it will come by way of judging the world. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're going to play a part in that. And Jesus is affirming that in Revelation chapter 2. That you and I will participate in Jesus' final eradication of evil if you're a Christian. I threw out this example when we were working through 1 Corinthians 6. It's kind of like the the final battle in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that you and I will one day play a part in destroying the White Witch and her band of followers. But he goes on to say in verse 28, I will give him the morning star, he who conquers. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that not only do you get to play a part in eradicating evil, you get Jesus himself. That If you go on to read Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, it says this, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's Jesus speaking. He says, I am the bright morning star. That Jesus is saying this morning that to the one who conquers, you get me. 
That escape from hell is not ultimately the gospel. That escape from sickness and pain is not ultimately the gospel. That being reunited with loved ones is not ultimately the gospel. Are those things promises that we can hold on to? Yes. But if you want Jesus so that you can use him to get your hands on that which you really want, you'll never get him. The gospel is not that you get God to give you that which you want more than God. The gospel is that you get God, period. He's the gift. The king is the gift. That if that's not enough for you, if that doesn't stir your soul, then I have nothing better to offer you. Nothing. You get the king. You get Jesus. Congratulations. That if you go back to that picture of the final battle and the lion and the witch in the wardrobe, not only will you and I one day play a part in destroying the white witch and her band of followers, we will then spend forever with our good king in his castle by the sea. In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We take communion as a, a collective proclamation of Jesus' death until he returns. And we do that here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, come and, and take of communion this morning um, as a part of the church gathered. Um, as you prepare to do so, Sit with some of the questions that I posed this morning. Are, are you, do you, do you find yourself growing as a Christian or do you find yourself um, stagnant or in decline mode? And maybe this is the time to pray to God, even with absent affections. I, I don't like where I am right now. And I want you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to do a work in me to change that. I, I want you to commend in me that which you commend in this church in Thyatira, growth in faith, hope, and love. Or maybe if you're a Christian, it's, it's this issue of biblical illiteracy. Maybe it's the issue of interpreting the Bible through a faulty lens. Maybe it's the moral piece of it, of easy believism, that you just, I mean, you, you walk that aisle, you prayed that prayer, you signed that card, and then you just checked out. And, and maybe this morning is the time that you come back around and you go, that's not Christianity, and I don't want to buy into that anymore. That today is a day of reckoning for me where, where I now walk forward in faith and repentance looking at my good king who saved me rather than abandoning him for something lesser until the day I die. And if you're not a Christian, I'm not going to say it again. I, I can't paint it any better than I did before. You've heard the gospel this morning. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to bend your knee to Jesus as King and trust in Him as Savior or not? My prayer by the power of the Holy Spirit is that you would fall on your face before Him and, and trust in Him and experience true freedom. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.